one realizes very fast that the forces of naked power have now moved into the house of your soul. And they've gone into the room where you had all your memories of your loved ones, you know, your beloved uncle or whoever it is they've taken. And that's all messed up now. And they've moved in and taken everything. And they're maybe going to stay for a very, very long time in that house of your soul. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Arpsis podcast, a series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia and in this episode we speak to Sophia Kareem. Sophia is an architect based in London. Her practice combines architecture, visual art and activism, and she campaigns for the release of political prisoners across India and Bangladesh. Her work has been exhibited at venues including the Tate Modern, the V&A, Coventry Cathedral, among others. In the episodes, Sophia and I talk about many things throughout her life and also her work, from moving to the UK as a young girl, studying architecture, before becoming an activist and campaigning for the freedom of political prisoners, which began with the arrest of her uncle, the prominent photographer Shahidul Alam. So hi, Sophia Kareem. It's amazing to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to start the interview the same way I start every interview of the podcast, which is to ask you if you can think of a work of art, a song, a film, anything that you feel had an impact on your your life and your work. To give you an example, because I know it's a bit of a hard question, our previous podcast episode featured Ayman Hussein. And when I asked him that question, he spoke about kind of the emergence of graffiti and songs during the start of the revolution in Syria in 2011 as having this huge impact on him and his work. It doesn't have to be anything like that, but if there's just something that comes to mind when I, when I ask you that question, let me know. I'd say it's a piece of architecture not a known piece of architecture. Mm-hmm. It's um, the wall in my father's house in his village in Bangladesh. And it's a earth wall. It's mm-hmm. an earth house. Um, and I think I saw this wall when I was quite young, maybe mm-hmm. 10 years old or something. And I just remember um, sitting on a bed and the sunlight came through Uh, I think it came through sort of bamboo woven screens and hit this rough earth wall. And I was just mesmerized by that, the kind of spiritual power of that. Mm. And that's never left me. Wow. So it's that relationship between architecture and light that was really had an impact on you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, um, I think some of my writing or uh, some of the work I do on something I call architecture of disappearance is very much to do with how I think architecture in its essence has something to do with the human condition, Mm. by which I mean 
suffering and there's something to do with the inherent melancholy of architecture which I think speaks profoundly to um, human existence. Mm. That's so interesting and I wanted to to really start by talking about your architecture because I was I had a quote from you that really interest me where you say that architecture is a social practice where moral choices become inescapable and so could you tell Mm. me maybe about kind of getting into how you got into architecture and really what this relationship between architecture and social practice what that means to you I think it was at that point where when I saw that light on that wall Mm. where I felt I wanted to be an architect, although I didn't understand that as a concept. I was too young. I didn't really know what architects did. Initially, I hadn't wanted to practice architecture. I'd wanted to be an artist, but my parents said no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then um, I became an architect um, and studied architecture and then worked in professional commercial architecture for, you know, over two decades. Mm. But I always had a political interest, I think, Mm. and coming from a family of uh, other artists, well, only the only other um, member of my family who was an artist was my uncle, but uh, other members of my family were activists and always very interested in social justice. Mm. And I felt that was completely lacking in professional architecture. Yes. Um, It was very disillusioning working especially in corporate architecture. Mm. And um, the moment you put pen to paper, what you're essentially doing is um, working out how to maximize a developer's profit. That's really what it's all about. Um, And I just thought that's totally wrong. It shouldn't be like that. Yeah. No, it's, it's such an interesting and also really important idea, I think. And... You know, from like the the smallest point that I was thinking about, I mean, it's it's more kind of planning, but when thinking mm-hmm. about when, you know, COVID was happening here in the UK and we were only allowed to, you know, be outside and suddenly you realize that all the spaces of London even are designed by men for men. So things like, mm-hmm. you know, access to a toilet for women when you're not allowed to go inside, it suddenly becomes this huge issue. But also mm. that sense, I think you're right, of living in a world where personal responsibility is kind of removed. So you you think, you know, I can work for these people, even though I know there's, you know, what they do is not particularly right, but because they're paying me and I'm not, you know, socially responsible for, you know, directly responsible for it, or even, you know, from different levels of it. It's it's such an important thing. Mm. You mentioned kind of growing up with artists and and activists in your family. Can you tell us a bit about your your early life, where you grew up and and what life was like? Mm. Well, um, actually, there wasn't very much art in my family. So the Mm. only, like I said, the only member of my family who was an artist was my uncle. So I grew up in in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I was about one, my parents um, moved to Libya Mm. And they were teaching at the medical school in Benghazi. And um, so I think my early years were spent in Libya. 
Um, mm. And that is really just a collection of memories and smells and images in my mind that are very, very strong, but I never went back there again and have no connection. So it's this kind of strange um, period of one's life, which is a sort of catalogue of, of memories yes. and that you, you never return to. Um, and then we came back to London uh, must have been about seven, I think. Um, and I've really lived in London ever since. Mm. Yeah, so our house had no art books. It was all medical and science books. Um, and then one day, I think my mum or dad from the pound shop mm. got me a kind of box set. And it was Michelangelo. Rembrandt mm. and Leonardo, cheapo pound book, pound shop books. And that set of books, we had these long kind of fake red velvet curtains <laughs> in the house. And I would hide behind those curtains and look at those books for hours, mm. um, particularly if I was feeling upset or distressed. But I would just kind of go into that world especially the Rembrandt one actually mm. and his use of light uh, I was completely captivated and mesmerized by that yeah so our house had no art books it was all draw and draw and actually um, one thing my parents did say was that before I could talk I would sometimes draw to communicate what I wanted wow <laughs> yeah um <laughs> They laugh about that. <laughs> so yeah, it was that was really my main exposure to art. Yeah, and do you remember when you were so you're seven years old and just kind of moving from Libya to the UK? Do you remember what it was like those early days in the UK when you just moved? Do you have memory of what it was like for you? Yeah, it was very hard. Yeah, quite alienating. Uh, we'd moved to Croydon and I didn't like the school at all. Mm. Um, everything felt really cold. Um, and I think Libya had been such a vibrant life and yeah. I had, my teachers were really kind and quite personable. Uh, and I loved them and they loved me. Mm. And then coming to England, that kind of connection wasn't there. Yeah. And uh, I moved to school twice, I think. Uh, and I think never really felt quite as safe again. Yeah. Hmm. I can imagine. I can, yeah, I can only imagine. And how was it for your parents? Because you mentioned that they had moved to Liverpool before hmm. going to Libya. Had they been living in the UK for a long time? They had. Um, my sister had gone to school in Liverpool. Uh, mm. They were working as doctors. Um, and then, yeah, they came back. We, we all came back to the UK. And I think life wasn't easy. They weren't happy. Uh, mm. The house wasn't happy. And I think it's, I mean, my parents are extremely, extremely loving. Uh, and 
really sacrificed everything all their lives for us and our education. Mm. So their life was very much one of sacrifice where, um, I mean, they never really did anything for themselves. They never saw them going out for a meal or going to a theatre or, or really mm. even living as a couple in that sense. It was all yeah. about being parents and um, doing everything for us. But at the same time, the house wasn't a happy place and you could sense that they were facing a lot of pressure. And, yes. You know, it's it was extremely racist at that time. Yeah. And um, the reason I think they couldn't be happy was that it was very difficult for them to adjust and it was a sort of reflection of, the pressures that they were facing themselves mm. and so when I'm talking about that time when I'd hide behind the curtains and look at those books on Rembrandt and Michelangelo and Leonardo it's those memories are kind of immersed in that that sense of gloom that we grew yeah. up in yeah yeah and so you you grow up and you you know you work in architecture when did you start to really focus your work a lot on activism and art activism? That only happened very suddenly in 2018. Mm. I had left my job by then, as in the day job, and gone freelance as an architect. I wanted mm. to explore my own ideas. But I was only a few months into that when um, we got a phone call from my parents from Dhaka, Bangladesh, and they said, your uncle, the photographer, Shahid Alam, has gone. He's been abducted. Mm. And um, that's a kind of separate story that we can go into. But it was at yeah. that point that I began campaigning for him full time. And mm. that was a big shift in my life. And after he, we, he, he was released after 107 days, but I then, then began campaigning for other political prisoners and yes. working within a kind of sphere of activism. Mm -hmm. And you've said about your uncle, and I'm going to quote you again, <laughs> being with him almost takes being alive to a different level. You're lifted to somewhere higher uh, than the ground plane of the earth. And from that place, you dare to break and unlearn everything you thought you understood, rebuild it and break it again. I was wondering when you when you reflect on kind of that shift to activism when he was arrested and the subsequent work you've done now, how you feel like he has influenced your your activism and this kind of joining between the arts and activism in your work? I suppose the first word that springs to my mind when you're talking is the word courage. Mm. I think, and in that quote, it's I mentioned the word daring. Yeah. <clears throat> it's about... He was one of the only ones that really allowed us to explore taking risks. Mm. And that's not only political risk, but that's also risk in life, in how one lives one's life. Yeah, and so his whole life had been committed to the cause and his um, activism and social justice. And he did mm -hmm. always say to us as we were growing up, what are you doing to contribute? Yeah. Are you going to do anything? And he didn't really 
I mean, we'd follow his work, um, but we weren't really engaged ourselves. Mm. And then when he was jailed, it just really struck me that he's done all the heavy lifting all his life. And it's my turn now to do something. And that's when I began. Hi, I'm Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. I'm very happy to announce that our latest issue, The Brink, is now out. The Brink features the work of seven Ukrainian artists who contemplate the impact of Russia's full-blown invasion of Ukraine on their lives and work. As an Art Persists podcast listener, you can get 15% using the code TAP with double P. That's T-A-P-P. Order now at bustlerarts.com. That's B-O-S-L-A-A-R-T-S dot com. Now back to the podcast. At Boston Arts, we, we work with artists who are kind of, I guess, on the front lines, you know, really taking massive, massive risks um, mm. and facing the consequences also, demanding social justice or, mm. you know, the fight for democracy or in whatever context it may be. And I think what really inspires me about the work that you've done since is that, you know, one question Faz and I always ask ourselves in this work is like, how do we make people care and how do we make people who aren't, who even if they read the news and engage, how do we make them take that next step to really want to take action? Mm. Um, especially when it's in countries which are really left out of the news in comparison to others, you know, in, in places where people, we only mm. know a tiny mm. portion of the story. And so, that's when I look at your work, I really see that. Um, for example, I saw your work, Memories of Karani. Sorry, let me just try and pronounce it. Mm. Memories of Karani Janj. Karani Ganj. Yeah. Karani Ganj Jail. Karani Ganj, yeah. <laughs> Karani Ganj, where you reimagine your uncle's cell. And mm. it's just kind of parts of that of your work where you you kind of force the viewer to confront the reality in a way. Can you tell me a, a bit about mm. how you do that, more about that work and generally how you do that in your practice? This is a good question. So sometimes I think I'm, yeah, I mean, increasingly I'm described as an activist mm. and that's fine and that's fair enough. And I know I will often describe myself as an activist, but in some senses, there's kind of preconceptions about that term of being an Mm. activist um, in contrast with being an artist. And I'd say that um, on the one side, my work is very much what one might regard as activist work in that it's very direct and the message Mm. is very clear and I'm working with other artists and yeah. the messages are very direct, um, and that's all fine, and that needs to happen, and that kind of art is important. And um, you know, every civil rights resistance movement has needed that kind of art and has had that 
kind of art. Yeah. Because mm. um, ultimately we're talking about life and death and trying to mm. enact change and one must be very clear about one's aims. Yeah. But there's another side of my work uh, which is a lot more inward where meaning is not necessarily clear and I think that very much is also part of activism but mm. it's often a more neglected aspect to what's called activist art and it's about the kind of visceral human emotions uh, that are going on and so um, for instance when they took my uncle I was kind of vacillating between extreme lucidity on the one hand and a total helplessness and void on the other hand and very strange emotions that I couldn't even begin to describe other than to say that it was at that point where one realizes very fast that the forces of naked power have now moved into the house of your soul mm. and they've gone into the room where you had all your memories of your loved ones you know your beloved uncle or whoever it is they've taken mm. and that's all messed up now and they've moved in and taken everything and they're maybe going to stay for a very very long time in that house yeah. of your soul and how does one process that and uh i often say that you know, I was asked in an interview, is my work political? Mm. And I responded by saying that, um, well, I think as an artist, what I try to do is really get into human experience. And so yeah. when I'm writing letters to Professor Sai Baba in jail in India or the BK-16 and they write back to me, I'm trying to tap into that kind of human experience of their life, which is well, I'm calling it life, it's really on the edges of life and death. Mm. And um, this way of being that is invisible and that no one really knows, and I try and dig deeper and deeper and get into that. And then that feeds back into my existence, the way I yeah. experience life. And so my art is about my experience, my human experience, which includes my encounters with... Um, political prisoners and if you want to call that political art you can mm. so the Kerani Ganj jail work was that <clears throat> um, the night that my uncle was abducted uh, on in the daytime I'd be campaigning and in the nighttime I'd often dream of things in terms of architectural space which surprised mm. me uh, and I would dream about very strange spaces and they weren't spaces as I recognized. They were mainly kind of raw spaces composed of color and emotion, and they would expand and contract and expand again. And then I began thinking that, is that what happens if you're blindfolded and confined? What happens to space? Is that yeah. I knew that he'd been made to walk up and down stairs with heavy objects on his head whilst blindfolded. Wow. And um, I wondered if that's what was happening. So this was happening. And then in parallel, I began to actually try and 
reconstruct the spaces that I imagined that he occupied in my mind. Mm. Because initially we didn't know very much about him, but then as my aunt began to visit him and I'd hear little fragments of where he was or the prison cells that he was in. And so um, I began trying to construct them in my mind. And I was doing that quite consciously because mm. I wanted to be with him. I uh, hated the thought of him being alone and I knew he'd yeah. been tortured and I wanted to go. You know, he'd helped to raise me as a child and I didn't know mm. if I'd ever see him again. And so I was trying to construct the spaces and then enter and be with him and hold his hand. Yeah. And the other reason I think I was doing it, and it's still the case now, is that alongside my political work, I still uh, turn to architecture when I'm distressed. Mm. And working on kind of technical details or <clears throat> working on maths and numbers and geometry calms me down still, calms yeah. my head down. And, yeah, so it was me sort of doing that I think at a subconscious mm. level so I kind of built this prison complex in my mind and then after he was released he was working on an exhibition for the Rubin Museum in New York and mm. I think he'd had to have a section in that exhibition and it was about how does the photographer tell stories when a photographer doesn't have a camera so in prison mm. he didn't have a camera and he sent me this little sketch he'd done, a hand-drawn sketch. And he said, learning to draw. And mm. it was an aerial view of that prison. And I was obviously very used as an architect to uh, working with kind of aerial views. Uh, and mm. I said, oh, you could do this this way or that way. Uh, maybe you could build a model of it. And that's mm. when he came up with the idea that, do you want to work on part of this exhibition and mm. maybe make models of the prison? And so we had, uh, he visited London and we had a couple of conversations and where he gave me extra details and we had no drawings or measured anything. Mm. So he would tell me stories about what was happening in the jail and I'd gather those stories and with those stories and what was in my mind, and my memories, I began to construct the prison. Mm. And that's how those models happened. Yeah, they're amazing. They're so beautiful. And I'll, I'll share a link of it in the description so people can see. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's really interesting what you, you were saying about kind of drawing on that human emotion. Because I think, you know, when, when someone, when an activist or an artist or a journalist, whoever gets imprisoned, the idea is that you're you're silencing obviously the person, but you're also trying to remove them from society and trying to fracture the whether it's a political movement or whatever, you know, it's that mm. sort of sort of sense of trying to completely rupture any form of, of voice coming from mm. the person or the group. Mm. And actually as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, the how this is you know, an individual's experience we're seeing replicated all over the world. And mm. actually there's so much power in in uniting, you know, the people who are affected by this, the countries that are affected by it, you know, uniting together in that kind of lived experience against the the powers who are 
silencing people. Mm-hmm. And I think looking at your, the projects you've done, um, for example, the samosa packets and, uh, Turnbeinbach and seeing mm-hmm. how it's really, you know, about your experience, but then replicated throughout the world with pe- other people's experience of that kind of, similar ideas for freedom basically mm. is so inspiring could you tell us a bit about those projects and um yeah what the outcomes of them as well yeah <clears throat> so the turbine bug began so when my uncle was in prison i didn't know what to do and one day i went to Tate modern and Tanya Bruguera's turbine hall installation had just opened mm. with the Cuban performance artist and activist Tanya Bruguera. Yes. And I went to see it. And then a couple of days later, a curator friend of my uncle's, Jose Carlos from Peru, mm. uh, contacted me and he said, um, I've got a f- series of photographic prints of your uncle's. We just did a protest exhibition for him in Lima. I'm in London mm. and I would like to give them to you. So we met at Tate Modern and I was telling him I'd seen Tanya Bruguera's exhibition. And he said, I'm going to contact her and see if she can help you. I never thought mm. anything of it. She doesn't know me at all. <clears throat> and then the next day he WhatsApped me and I was on the tube. And he said, mm. hey, guess what? I'm with Tanya Bruguera. <laughs> come come tomorrow to the turbine hall bring those prints we're going to do a protest exhibition for your uncle in the turbine mm. hall and uh so these were prints on extrajudicial killings in bangladesh and everything was written in bangla on these prints mm. <clears throat> so how did you do a turbine hall exhibition so i didn't even know i went to the pound shop in ealing and bought a bunch of <laughs> mini torches because I knew that my uncle had photographed these photos in torchlight because it's the Mm. last light the victim would see was the policeman's torch. Turned up at the turbine hall, Tanya was amazing, she just let Mm. me do whatever I wanted. So we just put the prints on the floor with the torches and then um, word got back to Shahidul in jail that this had happened and he Mm. smiled. And then she invited me to do it again during the school holidays and loads of kids came. So after he was released, um, mass protests in India had broken out um, against the anti-Muslim citizenship laws that Narendra Modi was um, imposing. And I Mm. was working with activists here and we knew that politically we're not going to get very far because the UK government is an ally of Modi and they're not going to say much neither on the left nor the right. So we were thinking of cultural things we could do. And I was now I had my foot in the door of the turbine hall. I was, I'm going to mm. use it again. So I came up with a proposal and to do a protest at the turbine hall. And I decided to work with, do a call out to artists from India, Bangladesh, and, and wherever to send their art of mm. the kind of protest movements that were happening there. And um, the form of the protest art was the samosa packet, which yes. we were going to make these samosa packets and then send them back to the Shahinbag protest site. So Shahinbag was this huge Muslim women-led 
sit-in in Delhi and the food was mm. said to be amazing there. I'd read that even the policemen were going there for the food. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a, the greeting in Shaheen Bagh was apparently not, how are you, but have you eaten? So mm. I, w- I didn't have any money. And so uh, it was just all printed on my mum's crappy broken home printer <laughs> using old paper from cupboards in her house. Mm. And hundreds of artists sent their work and that's how we began and then the protest never happened because two days before um, it was supposed to happen the museum shut for covid Mm. and then Shaheen Bug protest by itself was shut down by the government during covid it didn't matter we just carried on Mm. no it's incredible and it did. It, I've seen that it really like took off across the world with people from different countries making their own versions, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, from the movement, what are, what are some of the things that really surprised you? The things that surprised me were that uh, from having worked with hundreds of artists now, some very well known, some not known at all, some who I can't find anymore because mm. for the risks they were taking, they've now disappeared from social media or had to just Mm. go away. Um, But not one single artist had a problem with the way I'd done the work, for instance. I mean, I was taking their images and putting them however I wanted. And I thought they'd come back and say, I don't like what you did with my image or I don't like the way Mm. you printed it. Or... uh, and also the, the, these samosa packets have become uncontrollable objects. And mm. so um, they've been reproduced. They've been sent out on the street. I share them with friends. And I thought some artists would say, sorry, but, you know, I've got copyright of that image. And yeah. you shouldn't be spreading my artwork like that. But I've not had a single problem with a single artist as yet. And for me, that's a testament to the generosity of artists and their trust I suppose Mm. that surprised me the other thing that surprised me was the quality of work from many completely unknown artists um, Mm. including so one artist uh, is Abu Kalum who's a Rohingya refugee and Mm. when he was jailed by the government of Bangladesh for some photos he took of a refugee camp I used his images to make a free Abu Ghalam samosa packet. And um, I, I was quite naughty. I had to go on Instagram and just take his images without asking his permission. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but I thought, well, hopefully he'll be all right with it. Um, mm. But I was so struck by the quality of fo- photographs, not only from him, but other Rohingya refugees. Um, mm. I was like, these guys are using their cameras like prophets. And their images are stunning. And then um, I made the packet and that's that. And then he was eventually released. And then one day I got a message from him. And he Mm. said, that's me. I'm released. And thank you for doing this. And please, can I send more photos from the camps? And can you try and highlight the work we're doing? Mm. So those kind of things were surprises. Other surprises were, um, you know, other political prisoners whose work I was making work on 
I didn't know their families at all or them. Mm. And somehow their families came to hear about the work I was doing and we became connected. And we are still connected. And those kind of wow. relationships are really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's so powerful. And I think also it's that it's that um you know, some pe some I feel like sometimes people question, you know, what's the point the in if we're doing a campaign or whatever, you know, no, it's not going to change anything. But actually, mm -hmm. for someone who's in prison, um, just knowing that people out there are calling their name or advocating for them or writing to them is, it can make so, so much difference to the individual. Mm. I think um, just on that point, mm. just this week, I uh, wrote a series of four letters on the back of four samosa packets to mm. Professor Hani Babu, who is one of the BC yes. prisoners in mm. India. Yeah. And um, I wrote to him about, you know, that the fact that these are now being exhibited all over the world, you know, from Chile to Argentina to Germany to UK. And I said, uh, that's not really, that's all fine. And, and, that's important and these things need to happen mm. um, but for me it's those aren't really the things that linger in my mind the things that linger in yeah. my mind are much smaller everyday things but I just I am telling you that these things are happening because they are of course important to the cause and and to the struggle mm. and not everyone's going to get a seat at the big table you know to go and speak in Tate Modern things yeah and there are questions to be asked uh, about working with institutions. And mm. I wrote that to him that, you know, there are certainly questions to be asked. But if I get a seat at the big table, believe me, I'm going to use it, if only to ensure mm. you're not forgotten, because the worst mm. thing is to be forgotten. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Sophia, I've taken a lot of your time, so I just want to end it just asking you what, what you're working on at the moment and what you have coming up. So just this, this morning, I'm doing something very nice. I gave a lecture at Cambridge University uh, Architecture Department. Mm. And I decided, so these are undergrad architecture students, and I decided to structure the presentation around lines from poems from Professor Sai Baba, who's in jail in India. Mm. And fascinatingly, the students kept in touch and we decided to make a book. So the prisoners really love to get books in jail. For instance, mm. I, I heard recently that they're into reading Elena Ferranti at the moment. Which was, oh, was really? <laughs> So the prisoners in Taloja jail are, are um, reading Elena Ferranti. And I've sent mm. books to jail before. But I thought, well, one thing they may not have is anything on architecture. Mm. So some of the students from Cambridge University, the Bartlett and the Architectural Association sent me some drawings of theirs. Mm. And I've bound them. I just hand bound them this morning into a little green book of drawings. And I did the cover of it in parakeet green because mm. I wrote to Professor Saibaba and I said, what's your favorite color? And he said, I don't see any colors here except the rusty iron bars. 
but the colour I dream of, the colour of freedom, is parakeet green. And so I just bound that book with a parakeet green um, cover, and I'm hoping to send that to the prison so they'll have a book of architectural drawings from students as a gesture of solidarity. That is such an inspiring and beautiful way to end this. Thank you so, so <laughs> much. And it's just... Yeah, it's just so great to hear also that young students are interested in these kind of things, you know, and that can be inspired and take part as well. So thank you so much for sharing it and for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank Sophia for joining us for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about her work, please find links in the description. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Art Persist podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you rate it and share it online with friends and family. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Thanks for listening and see you next week.